The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. On a windy mountain peak, a woman cleared dirt and mess from an altar. Stone slabs making a floor were littered with bits of offerings, broken pottery, scraps of food, ashes from fire. Dark pools of liquid marked the libations of wine poured onto the stones for cleansing the earth. Mixed with the wine, the splash of animals' blood was a black stain. A Cretan priestess was performing her duties at a stone altar. The altar had steps leading up to it, on which pilgrims and locals had placed tiny figurines of bronze and clay, offerings to the great gods high above. The steps were covered in garlands of flowers and bowls of food or wine. To one side, a pair of tall bronze axes gleamed in the sunlight, their double heads a wicked blade for use in sacrifice. All around, the symbols and remnants of worship were a constant sight. Like many Cretans, the priestess conducted her rituals at a sanctuary built on a mountain peak. Difficult to reach, exposed to the elements, and with an unparalleled view of the land and sea, the mountain sanctuary was the perfect place to experience the wonder of nature and connect with the high power of the divine. Cleaning her altar, the priestess could feel that energy all around, in the howl of the wind, the chill of the air, the scent of the sea far below. As she worked, she hummed a rhythm of ancient worship, a paean of praise to the gods in the sky. Had she looked down from her lofty space, she may have seen a curious sight. A strange ship with an unfamiliar hull and unusually coloured sails was making its way towards the island. It had come from the north, but that was the home of the invaders, the raiders who came from Greece and caused calamities in the harbours of Crete. This wasn't one of their ships, so who was it? The priestess finished her cleaning and headed back down the mountain. Soon enough, she reached her hometown and there had a chance to watch as a great vessel pulled into the harbour. With a lotus blossom prow and a brightly coloured sail, the ship was crewed by dark-skinned men in bright white linens. She knew these people, she had seen their like before. The Egyptians were returning to Crete. Hello, and welcome to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 102b, Colourful Keftiu, aka Twilight on Crete. This is part two of our journey abroad, following an Egyptian embassy as they travel to the lands of the Aegean. With the wind at our backs, and the blessings of Shu and Tefnut upon us, we ride the waves to foreign shores. 
This episode is brought to you by Alan C., who donated to the show. Also, thanks to Chris and Cheryl for becoming patrons of the podcast. Alan, Cheryl, Chris, you are too kind. May Zeus and his overlord Ra, the Falcon of Two Horizons, guide you to safe shores always. For everyone listening, please enjoy the show. Once again, the sea rose and fell. The waves crested, then collapsed. Their deep blues, a colour almost as dark as wine, shimmered in the summer sun. Riding these waves, a mighty ship ploughed its way southward. The ship was an Egyptian seagoer. It was heading for Crete. Crete was an old favourite, the island of choice for traders and sailors throughout the Bronze Age Mediterranean. From Egypt, Canaan, Syria, Cyprus, and Anatolia, great ships made the westward journey, bringing wares and goodwill to the island of the seafarers. From far and wide, people visited mountainous Crete, and its people called Keftiu. The Keftiu, what we call Minoans, were the inhabitants and rulers of Crete for over 1,000 years. They lived in settlements across the island, on the coasts and the mountainous interior. They farmed and hunted the woods, fished the waters, and worshipped in the natural landscape of their beautiful home. From their immense, lavish palaces, the Keftiu rulers commanded great influence across the Bronze Age seas. Fortunately, they were friendly to the Egyptians. Most importantly, they were rich. So the Egyptian ship plied the waters, and its ambassadors prepared themselves to visit the Keftiu of Crete. Sailing along the coast, the Egyptians soon came to their most important destination. The town of Amnisos, or Imnisha in Egyptian, was a small fishing village with a good harbour. Amnisos itself wasn't significant, but it functioned as the port for a much larger and more noteworthy town. Disembarking, the Egyptians were headed for the city of Knossos. Knossos is located just south of the coast, about halfway between the eastern and western points of the island. It is, without a doubt, the most significant Keftiu city that there is. From its fabled terraces, to its huge palaces, which might be temples, and its vast plains of agriculture, Knossos was the primary centre of all trade and political life on the island for many, many years. Of course, Knossos is more complex than that, and I'll explore a bit of that later. For now, let's follow the Egyptians as they made their way from Amnisos into the interior of the island. The ambassadors clambered onto donkeys and began a slow ride to the south. They were heading into the plains and valleys of central Crete. The countryside was a wonderful mix of burnt yellows, dusty greens, and a vast blue sky. Sunshine beat down on fields of wheat, on cypress and olive trees, and huge pastures of bulls, cows, sheep, pigs, and goats. This was a rich land, and I bet that many generations of Egyptian visitors had been impressed by the abundance of Crete's agriculture. After a few hours' donkey ride, the Egyptians arrived at Knossos, which they pronounced Karniusha. Once upon a time, Knossos was a towering edifice. Temples, workshops, storerooms, granaries, apartments, and guardhouses spread across a vast area. 
Houses clustered on the edges of this massive complex, which in reconstructions looks like a sprawling campus of interconnected buildings. It was an impressive space once upon a time. Visiting Knossos in 1370 BCE, the Egyptians may have expected a sprawling palace dominating the region with goods and people flowing in and out daily. If so, they would have been disappointed. By the time of Amunhotep III, Knossos and its rulers were past their heyday. The city was still impressive, but several changes in the wider world had seen Knossos diminish from a dominant force on Crete to a shadow of its former self. The Egyptians may have wondered, what was happening here? Well, around 1450 BCE, about 80 years before the Egyptian embassy, Knossos was hit with a period of turbulence. It seems that a catastrophe of some sort racked parts of the city and the countryside. We're not certain what caused it, but it might have been a series of earthquakes, an accidental fire, or even an invasion from other parts. The causes are still being investigated, but whatever the reason, the result is crystal clear. After 1450 BCE, Knossos began to slowly diminish in importance and wealth. How bad was it? Well, the Egyptians visited around 1370. By 1300 or so, the city would be abandoned for good. So the Egyptians came to Knossos in the twilight days of its splendor. Instead of a grand Keftiu kingdom, they found a city fading, slowly losing influence and prestige. Perhaps day-to-day life was normal enough, but in the big historical picture, Crete, after 1450, went through a prolonged and seismic transformation. Without getting tangled up in the big picture, we can simply say that, for the Keftiu and the people of Knossos in particular, it had been a difficult few decades. The Egyptians arrived at Knossos, past the outer limits, and entered the city's heart. Walking along the processional road, the Egyptian ambassadors found themselves entering a wide, flat courtyard. This is the central court of Knossos, a public space, and it formed the heart of the settlement, around which most of the other buildings developed. In this courtyard, the Keftiu Minoans conducted rituals, celebrations, social events, and even games. Games like the famous bull leaping, in which athletic youths propelled themselves up and over the backs of charging bulls. Somersaulting, vaulting, doing tricks, the leapers of Crete were skilled and impressive acrobats. Even the Egyptians commemorated them in artwork back at home. The ambassadors came into the courtyard and found themselves face to face with the aristocracy of Knossos. The Keftiu were a splendid sight, ornately dressed, tall, glittering in finery. The Egyptians would have appreciated them. Based on artwork from their home, the costumes and garments of Keftiu Minoans were of great interest to the people of the Nile. Keftiu show up in tomb paintings from Thebes, bedecked in their finest clothes and jewellery, and the Egyptians depicted them with great care to detail. Coming to the home of the Keftiu, what kinds of sights might have greeted the ambassadors? According to art, the Keftiu were an ornate people. The men wore kilts, which were higher at the back and lower at the front, going down in a sort of V-shape between the knees. 
Bright colours marked the edges and hemlines, and rich geometric patterns show up on their fabrics, even when they're depicted in Egyptian tombs. Beneath the kilts, Keftiu men wore leather sandals strapped up around the shins with bands of cloth. These putties, as older scholars called them, are a characteristic of their fashion, and would later go on to become quite popular in Greece and Rome. From the waist down, Keftiu men were quite covered up, wearing kilts or loincloths, with bright colours. On top, they usually went shirtless. Keftiu women wore long skirts, emphasising the hips. These were layered in heavy folds, and vivid colours decorated them as well. Around the waist, leather belts of some sort held the skirts up. On top? Well, that's another story. Keftiu women wore a sort of blouse or bodice. This was done up, but on ceremonial occasions, some women, perhaps priestesses, seem to have opened the bodice up to expose the chest. As you can imagine, this kind of look excited the early archaeologists, and it was publicised widely. Today, it's the classic image of a Keftiu lady. Google Minoan dress and you'll inevitably get a picture of a woman in a long skirt with her décolletage and breasts exposed for all to see. Scholars are a bit more cautious about this image now. For one thing, the look is quite impractical if you're working in the fields or weaving or pottery. For another, we tend to see this image only in specific contexts. Women with bare breasts appear in scenes of celebration or display, which suggests that the topless look is a ceremonial thing rather than a day-to-day. So we should probably discard that old idea of the bare-breasted Minoan lady, at least for the most part, and imagine it as a specific style for a specific occasion. Festivals, worship, even weddings. Perhaps this was the ancient Keftiu version of ceremonial best. So Keftiu clothing was quite fascinating. Another interesting aspect is these people's hairstyle. Keftiu men and women both wore their hair long. Surviving images show them dressed with their hair up, tied back with a band of cloth. Women sometimes piled their hair into towers. The men let it flow down their back, styling it in the most majestic hairstyle of all, the mullet. Realistically, long hair was probably a phenomenon of the wealthy. The commoners out in the fields may have had a more cropped style of cut. The Keftiu were overall a brightly coloured and decadent people, at least the elite. The Keftiu were overall a brightly coloured people. Their clothing seems to have emphasised patterns and layers, and this probably gave them a very distinctive look compared to the Egyptians. Granted, we have a very small supply of images to draw from, and they mostly show the wealthy in specific contexts. But to the Egyptian embassy entering the heart of the palace, the Keftiu elites would have seemed like an impressive, decadent sight indeed. Physically, the Keftiu were a lot like the modern Cretans. Women were about 157 centimetres tall, 5 foot 1 slightly shorter than Egyptian men. Keftiu males were about 167 centimetres tall, or 5 foot 5. They were a sturdy folk with strong build and rugged features. Life expectancy was somewhere between 30 to 50 on average, with a very few making it older than that. 
So the average Kefdu was a tall, middle-aged individual, imposing and elegantly dressed. Great stature and strong physique encourage us to think that the Kefdu were a healthy people for the most part. A lot of this was their diet. As you can imagine, Kefdu meals were packed with the staples of a healthy Mediterranean culture. Meat included a lot of fish, goat, beef and pork, probably grilled on a fire. Vegetables included chickpeas, sesame and roots. Plenty of fruits like olives, figs, quinces and pears as well. And of course, grapes were ubiquitous, in wine and in consumption. So, with a varied diet, a good climate, and an active lifestyle, the Keftiu were a strong, handsome people. The Egyptians, by contrast, were short and slightly malnourished. Egyptian diets were never as varied as those of the Mediterranean, and food did not travel easily in the age before salting or refrigeration. So, as they approached the Keftiu representatives, the Egyptians might have noticed how, like the Mycenaeans, these people were an imposing, elegant sight. So the Egyptians came to Knossos and met with the local nobility. They bowed low before these bronze-skinned, long-haired people and admired their fashion sense. Naturally, this being an embassy and all that, they opened proceedings with the giving of gifts. Archaeologists have discovered several objects in Crete that bear the name of Amunhotep III, King of Egypt. From the ancient communities of Knossos, Phaistos, and Kedonia, decorated scarabs show up within the ruins. These are the same sort of scarabs that Amunhotep commissioned early in his reign, and which we explored in episode 97. The scarabs are small, made of faience, and usually bear the names of the king and his principal wife, Queen T. Put together, they are a lovely little collection. The Egyptian scarabs from Crete are varied in their design. At Knossos, one showed up with the hieroglyphic text Neb Ma'atra Seba Tawi, aka Neb Ma'atre Amunhotep, the star of the two lands. Another at Phaistos said Chemet Nesut Ti, the king's wife, Queen Ti, and a third one at Kedonia said Neb Ma'at Rei Meri Rei, Neb Ma'at Rei, beloved of Rei. So the scarabs cover their bases. One invokes the pharaoh as a splendid, dazzling figure within Egypt. Another celebrates his wife, who later became quite famous internationally. And a third emphasizes the pharaoh's status as one favored by the sun god himself. There's probably some significance to all this, but that's a question for the academics. In exchange for such gifts, the Keftiu elite may have given their guests some high-quality golden jewelry. The Keftiu were quite good at this particular industry. The Keftiu elite were pretty well off by ancient standards. Maybe not pharaonic rich, but still high up on the ladder. Looking at just a couple of their artifacts, we can get a sense of their wealth, their tastes, and their international connections. As the two cultures trade their goods, we should notice how rich the Keftiu diplomats were. In Bronze Age Crete, both men and women wore jewellery. This could take the form of beaded collars, necklaces made of copper from Cyprus, gold, silver, and semi-precious stones. They wore diadems, or headbands, of cloth, but also of silver or gold on ceremonial occasions. 
Like the Egyptians, the Kaftiu might display their status or prestige with a pectoral, a plate of metal, decorated and worn on the chest. Finally, they would adorn their wrists, ankles and biceps with bands of gold. In the hair, gold-topped hairpins held coifs in place, and on the ears, elaborate earrings finished off the look. I would be remiss if I didn't mention one particularly noteworthy piece of Minoan jewellery. The Malia pendant is in the Museum of Heraklion in northern Crete. It is a gold piece decorated to look like two bees facing each other and holding small discs between them. Small coins hang down off the bees' wings, and at the top, a tiny metal cage holds a small ball which would jingle as the person walked. The Malia pendant is noteworthy both for the beauty of its appearance and the high-quality craftsmanship, but also the fact that the two bees which make up the main body, these are identical to the Egyptian hieroglyph for this animal. For a long time, scholars were unsure whether the Malia pendant depicted bees or hornets or some other insect. It wasn't until the early 1980s that a scholar recognised that the two bees were identical to the Egyptian word beet, meaning bee. Since then, it's been recognised that the Malia pendant is trace evidence for artistic communication between the cultures of Crete and the cultures of Egypt. In other words, artists from both countries were influencing one another, and their motifs show up in both lands. I'll explore some of the Keftiu and Mycenaean influences on Egyptian art in the next episode, but the Malia pendant is a beautiful example of how the Egyptians influenced the Aegean. The Egyptians gave their gifts, which probably included some items like food, wine and textiles, things that don't survive as easily in the record. They might have offered valuable resources like gold and copper, and they may have given gifts like pottery, which could travel far and wide on the ancient trading routes. Remarkably, Keftiu goods show up alongside Egyptian ones in some very far-flung places. Most impressively, an ancient palace in Israel revealed a pair of beautiful Minoan cups. These cups were found quite well preserved in the Bronze Age layers of a palace. They appeared alongside, what else, a scarab of Amunhotep III, and were discovered in a well-preserved, sealed context. This suggests that the goods were deposited together at the same time, and not disturbed since they were laid down. Put together, the scarabs and cups suggest that Keftiu Egyptian trade was still active at the time of Amunhotep III, and artefacts of both cultures were travelling far and wide. So as the Egyptians and Keftiu exchanged goods, they renewed and solidified their two cultures' relationship. Maybe they retired to the palaces now, and began a great feast. This day was a good day. The Egyptians spent a few days at Knossos, sampling the local culture. We'll explore some of this in the epilogue, but for now, it's time to complete our embassy. 
The Egyptians left the great city and headed back towards the coast for the town of Amnesos. There, they boarded their great cedarwood ship and set sail once more, this time heading away from the great island. The Egyptians may have headed home by one of two routes. Either they rounded the eastern promontory and went directly southward, or they took the safer journey, going up towards Rhodes and then directly eastward to the island of Cyprus and the coast of Syria. Either way, they would be home within a matter of weeks, and once back in Egypt, they would report to the pharaoh in order to tell him of the success of their great journey. In the next episode, we will see our ambassadors report back to their king, visiting him at his grand palace city located west of Thebes. It is time to visit Amunhotep III's most famous monument, the enduring city of Malkata. But first, a short epilogue to discuss the decline of Keftiu civilization and explore a grand religious ceremony conducted by the priestesses. In the dappled light of a forest clearing, a Keftiu priestess prepared herself for the rituals of worship which would celebrate the great gods. The priestess wore a long skirt with heavy folds. On top, she wore a bodice that was open to expose her chest. She was preparing for worship of the great mother goddess, Mater Thea, and as she gathered her ritual tools, she was joined by her colleagues, and perhaps by a group of Egyptian ambassadors, who came to observe Keftiu religion in its natural state. The Keftiu Minoans conducted many of their religious rituals outside in the open air. There were shrines and temples in the cities, but a lot of the archaeological and artistic material suggests that processions often made their way out into the countryside. The Keftiu performed rituals in at least three specific areas. Firstly, they went up to caves on the side of mountains. Also, they went to sanctuaries on the mountain peaks. Finally, they went to groves or clearings in the midst of forests. From a variety of sources, we get a sense that gods, generally, appeared to mortals in the context of nature. So, visiting Egyptians may have seen a Keftiu religious ceremony performed like this. Joining a procession, the ambassadors followed a long train of worshippers heading out of Knossos towards a forest. At the head of the group, a number of women were the leaders. In long, layered skirts, priestesses led the parade towards the grove of their goddess. And I stress goddess. Minoan ritual seems to have been overwhelmingly geared towards the feminine deity. Male gods did exist and are referenced, but the goddess, or Thea, is the most common figure in their art. So it's possible that goddess worship was the most popular form of religious expression for the Keftiu Minoans. The priestesses led their worshippers into the forest and towards a grove or clearing. There, beneath a tree, they set up the statuette of the goddess and began their rituals. I won't go into too much detail, but the basic gist seems to have been that the priestesses began to dance. Like ancient dervishes, they swayed back and forth, arms raised in the air. They called out to the goddess to come forth, shouts ringing through the clear air of the grove. The sun shone down, dappling the face of the statue. 
in the flickering light and shadow, the goddess's face may have seemed alive, its expressions changing with the moment. As the women danced, they may have worked themselves into a state of ecstasy. This is uncertain, but it's a strong possibility based on later practices from classical Greece. Eventually, the dancing and prayer culminated in the appearance or epiphany of the deity. Minoan rings, which you can see on the website, show goddesses appearing to their worshippers, floating above the dancers. The priestesses raise their arms, beckoning the goddess forward, and flowers bloom at Thothea's appearance. At this point, the offerings to the god began. We know of three major offerings in the Minoan rituals. Honey was popular, and sacrifices often involved goats. The most prestigious, though, was the meat and spirit of the sacrificial bull. Bulls are a big deal in Minoan cult. They appear in so many scenes and images that for a long time, scholars thought the Minoans actually worshipped them. That's no longer accepted. Now, it is believed that the bulls were simply the ultimate expression of offerings. Huge, powerful beasts taking time and resources to rear, the bulls were obvious symbols of fertility and strength. To sacrifice a bull, you also needed a seriously strong tool. The Minoans had just the thing. Our Egyptian embassy watched as a bull came forward led by a worshipper. One of the priestesses now picked up a weapon, a massive double-headed axe. This would be used for the sacrifice. The double axe is one of Minoan Crete's most common and visible religious symbols. It appears in the hands of goddesses or priestesses as a symbol of their power. Surprisingly, it never appears in the hands of a male. So in Minoan Crete, the most powerful weapon and religious symbol was in the hands of a female authority. Stepping forward, the priestess now used the axe with frightening efficacy. The lead priestess raised the double axe and brought it down into the neck of the bull. With a dull thud and a crack of bone, the beast collapsed and blood poured forth. Again and again the axe descended until the head of the bull was removed and it lay dead on the floor of the clearing. Such a sacrifice was the ultimate in offering. Rushing forward, priestesses carved the animal up in order to lay the meat on altars and braziers before the goddess. Steak cooked, mingling with the smoke of incense to create a rich floral barbecue. Their stomachs rumbling, the exhausted dancers and worshippers came forward to share in a communal feast of the bull. Our Egyptian friends would have been familiar with some of these rites. The Apis bull in Egypt may have received a similar treatment at the end of its life. Cows, of course, were common in temple sacrifice, and Egyptians had been consuming bovine meat as part of their worship for thousands of years. So as the feasting began, the Egyptians may have felt a twinge of homesickness. This was a familiar situation, but with a few alien features. The Egyptians shared in a ritual practice of their hosts. Although the kingdom around them was fading, the priestesses and the worshippers practiced with as much passion and piety as ever. To the Egyptians, this must have been intriguing. The open-air worship, for one thing, was radically different from the dark, closeted sanctuaries of Egyptian temples. Dancing and feasting were familiar enough, but the rituals of Crete had enough differences to hammer home just how far away they were from the Nile. 
I wonder if any of them felt anxious, or if they simply went with the flow, enjoying the novelty of travel in a new culture. The Egyptian embassy to Crete was a grand affair, visiting many sites and towns. The Egyptians exchanged, conversed, and shared culture with these foreign peoples who lived so far away, but who were so intimately connected to the wider world. The results are clear enough. Keftiu goods found their way to Egypt, sometimes in great quantities, and artistic expressions and connections were strong for many centuries of Egyptian history. As the year 1370 came to its end, the Egyptians' relationship with the wider world, specifically the Aegean, was growing ever stronger. The embassy to Crete solidified that and gave it its final expression. Why final? Well, for the Keftiu, their story was coming towards its end. I mentioned earlier how Knossos and other cities were hit with difficulties around the year 1450 BCE. Well, a lot of that may have had to do with those other Greeks, the ones that we met last episode. The Mycenaeans of mainland Greece are a conspicuous factor in the changes which swept across Crete and the Aegean around this time. Between 1450 and 1300 BCE, the people of Mycenae, or Mukini, spread their influence and power across the Aegean. They traded, colonized, and raided different areas, even going as far as Anatolia and tussling with subjects of the Hittite Empire. Over the course of generations, the Mycenaeans spread a powerful cultural influence to various parts of this region. On Crete, Mycenaean influence was profound. In settlements, graves, and art, hints and records of their culture become increasingly common after 1450. By the time of our Egyptian embassy, Mycenaean culture was present in almost every aspect of Cretan society. In fact, the Mycenaeans may actually have been ruling the island in some form. It's entirely possible that the people of Mycenae, or at least the elites, took over some of the political structures on Crete somewhere around 1400 BCE. A few pieces of evidence suggest that this happened. For one thing, their language appears very suddenly as the dominant language of Cretan texts. Administrative records and documents make a very quick switch from the old Keftiu language, Linear A, to the newer Mycenaean one, Linear B. It's unclear if this language shift marks a political domination, like a hostile takeover, or a softer kind of influence. Cultural markers like art or written language don't necessarily equal political control. The Mycenaeans may have been spreading their culture without conquering other peoples. Either way, the result on Crete was quite clear. Within a short space of time, a blink of an eye historically, the island transitioned from a Keftiu-dominated lifestyle to one with heavy Mycenaean influence. When the Egyptian embassy visited, that influence must have been blatantly obvious. Whether the palaces were ruled by native Keftiu or an immigrant elite, the sight of Mycenaean traders and administrators and the sound of their language must have been very common. To anyone paying attention, the writing was on the wall. This was the twilight of the old Keftiu period and the dawn of the Mycenaean one. So as the Egyptians said goodbye to their hosts and prepared to leave Crete, returning to Egypt, 
They were effectively saying goodbye to a thousand-year-old culture. On Crete and around the Aegean, the future belonged to the Mycenaeans. In upcoming episodes, we will see how this process rippled outwards across the Mediterranean. The Mycenaeans were not a stay-at-home kind of people. They travelled far and wide, and many different cultures felt the touch of their influence. Naturally, the Egyptians were very interested in what these new Greeks had to offer their society. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast as we take a journey far from the Nile Valley to visit distant lands. I hadn't planned to spend so long on Crete. Originally, it was a 10-minute section as part of the larger narrative about Mycenae. But the more I researched, the more fascinating it became, and I thought, in for an obol, in for a drachmi, and here we are, 90 plus minutes of ancient Aegean cultures. So thank you for indulging me, and I hope you enjoyed this visit to barbarous lands. And I do mean barbarous. The word barbarian comes from the ancient Greek barbaroi, and it translates as all who are not Greek, that is, foreigners. To be clear, the word wasn't originally a negative. Although barbarian has become pejorative in modern English, that is not the original meaning. Barbaroi is a statement of fact. You are either a Greek or not a Greek. Simple dichotomy. So our word for the day is the Greek barbaroi, people of foreign lands. The Egyptian equivalent is Kasutiu, which technically means people of the hill countries, but eventually developed a meaning closer to foreigners more generally. It's been fun to visit the Barbaroi, but please don't go around using this term or Kasutiu unless you want a bronze spear in the gut. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.